This is Foul Players Radio, your podcast for arts, entertainment, and pop culture. Welcome. My name is Michael Spedden, your host. Every episode features fun, fascinating stories about people in the performing arts, actors, authors, dancers, writers, musicians, athletes, you name it. Folks who are center stage, backstage, on camera, or behind the scenes. Sit back and listen. Let's have some fun. Foul Players Radio is a proud production of the Foul Players Group and the official podcast of the Foul Players of Perryville. And welcome again to the Rising from the Ashes season of Foul Players Radio. My name is Michael Spedden. Tonight we have Ruben Leader. Ruben Leader is a film and TV writer, director, and producer. He is a recipient of a Writers Guild Award, received two Emmy nominations for his work on Magnum P.I., you Might Feel a Little Prick is his first novel, and he joins us to tell us about it, as well as his story in the entertainment business. Ruben comes from a showbiz family, learning from working with his father, Paul, and alongside his two sisters, Mimi and Geraldine. He went on to be a successful writer, director, and producer with such shows as The Incredible Hulk, Magnum P.I., Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. He told great stories about playing on the Magnum P.I. softball team. He and Tom Selleck were the number three and four hitters. Uh, definitely a power-hitting duo launching home runs to right field as two uh, left-handed power hitters. Working on The Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby and the story behind the cult classic Ape. The links to his website and information on how to get his book are included in the show notes, but the website is www.rubenleader.com, and his IMDb page is also included in the show notes. Prior to the episode running, we will have an announcement from Alfred Guy, our official horror movie correspondent of Foul Players Radio, regarding a special charity event to be held from July 30th to August 1st, 2021 in Williamsburg, Virginia, for Scares That Care, a very fine, worthwhile organization. Please consider supporting this organization, scaresthatcareweekendva.com. Subscribe for free at www.foulplayersradio.com or listen wherever you find podcasts online. No matter what platform you listen on, you can help us greatly by giving us a fair review and a five-star rating. Also, be sure to visit our page on patreon.com, www.patreon.com slash foulplayersradio. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Foul Players of Perryville are back and have many shows booked for the fall and winter of 2021 into 2022. See our schedule at www.foulplayersofperryville.com. For bookings, we can be reached by phone at 443-600-0446 or by email at foulplayersperryville at yahoo.com. We will have Ruben Leader right after these words. Hey folks, Mike here. Welcome to Foul Players Radio. Uh, tonight, real quick before we start our episode, we have a couple of words from our official horror movie correspondent, Mr. Alfred Guy. Alfred is working with a very special charity, and he'd like to tell us all about it. He has a major event coming up. So Alfred, welcome and tell us what's going on, buddy. Thanks, Mike. And thank you for allowing me to share our charity with everyone. Scarcity Care is an IRS-approved 501c3 charity. Founded in 2006, we've raised and donated well over $300,000 in support of our mission. Our mission as a 100% volunteer organization is our focus on fighting the real monsters of childhood illness, burns, and breast cancer. 
And we do that by helping families who are experiencing these extraordinary hardships cope with that financial burden by raising and providing 10,000 per recipient family. And we do that as a direct cash award. So it can be used for whatever they need, whether it's modifying a van for a child with special needs, buying prescription medications, or traveling to treatments or therapy. We pick three families traditionally each year. And for the past couple years, we've been able to actually help four families and we hope to do so in 2021. You can reach our main website at www.scaresthatcare.org. I'd like to also share a couple of special events that we have for this year. The first is our Scares That Care Charity Weekend, which will be held in Williamsburg, Virginia. The website for that is scaresthatcareva.com. And there you will see everything that we have planned for that weekend. That weekend will take place starting July 30th and it will run through Sunday, August 1st, 2021. We will have special guests and authors from books, also celebrities from movies. We will have vendors selling their various wares. We have plenty of activities and movies and everything for fans to see. We'll also have a 5K race that happens on Saturday, July 31st, 2021. Now, even though this is a live event and you can register for that event, we also have the option to attend that event as a virtual participant which means if you can't join us in Williamsburg, you can still take part, you can still donate, you can still register for that race, and you'll still get all the swag and perks that everyone else gets, which includes a custom limited edition t-shirt and medal. Again, that race takes place on July 31st, 2021. But please take the opportunity to register for the virtual event if you cannot attend the main live event. You can see the links for the 5K at scaresthatcareweekendva.com. Also, if you want to donate directly to the charity, there's one way you can donate by text. If you use scares89 to 71777, you can make a direct donation to the charity. And again, though that will directly help our four families that have been picked for 2021. And once we raise enough money, we will be giving them each to take care of dealing with and coping with some of the financial burden from the health issues that they are suffering from. And thanks, Mike, for letting me share that. Absolutely, Alfred, anytime. Folks, that scares that care. And Alfred, if you could give us the website one more time so people can make their donations right away. Absolutely. There's several ways you can donate. If you dial into scares that care, org, you will see the links link for direct donations. If you're on your phone, you can also text SCARES89 to 71777. That's another way you can donate. To find out information again about the event weekend that we have the end of July, please go to scaresthatcareweekendva.com. Thanks, Mike. Wonderful. And thank you all, folks. Well, folks, we're welcoming Ruben Leader to the show tonight. Ruben just put out a book called You Might Feel a Little Prick. It's a novel that he's written, kind of a satire of the medical world. And he also has had a long and storied career in television and movies as a writer and a producer. And not only that, he comes from a family. Another showbiz family we have here, folks, Um, he's got sisters and his wife was and his father 
and his nieces were all in the business as well. And he's got a lot of writing credits, producing credits. So we're going to talk about all these things tonight. So Ruben, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to having you for a while. I've heard a lot of great things about you from Jan and um, good to have you. So welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So you just released a book. You might feel a little prick. What a name, huh? <laughs> That's what they always say to you before they uh, they really hurt you. I, I actually originally wrote that as a screenplay. I, I was saw having, that, yeah, yeah. I was having a very good run on uh, the late, well, uh, I was having a good run right, right, writing screenplays. And uh, and this one is, uh, as I'll probably talk about later, is extremely personal to me. And uh, it came out of my life and it came out of my late wife's life as well. Mm -hmm. And if I wrote it as a memoir, for instance, it would have just been an angry screed with no hallmark, uh, happy ending. And uh, uh, so um, there's humor pretty much in everything I do. Years pass and years pass. And it's sort of like when they tell you, write what you know, you can't help but write what you know. Uh -huh. So I wrote uh, I wrote this as a screenplay, and I had undergone a lot of surgeries, a lot of three spinal fusions, a cervical fusion, uh, uh, and it just sort of came out of nowhere. There ultimately was a reason. A really heroic rheumatologist uh, figured out I had this weird autoimmune disease, a rare one that began in my spine, mm. and she and it attacked uh, various systems, but it was really picking on the on the bone part of me. I had all these surgeries and and basically they didn't really work. So in the meantime, I directed a movie called Baltic Storm uh, in, in Europe on the North Sea in the middle of winter. Woo. I met the, the art director and I, we, um, we met two years later, we got married and less than two years later than that, she was diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer and given oh. three months to live. And so I stopped my life and deferred uh, dealing with any of my health issues and heard that three months turned into 26 months. And, uh, and uh, she was very tough. Then after that, my sister Mimi, who's a director, she directed uh, Deep Impact, the Peacemaker. Uh, she's a real famous person in our family. Uh, she sort of kicked my ass and I got hired to do a movie. She was doing a, a kind of a routine caper film uh, uh, with Antonio Banderas and Morgan Freeman. And uh, it didn't, wasn't much of a, it was a routine stealing jewels from the museum uh, uh, kind of movie. And, uh, and so I did the production rewrite on that, went to uh, New York and Bulgaria where she shot it. Then I, uh, then some Italian producers called me and I did a, a my first adaptation, no, my second adaptation of a, um, a memoir written by a guy who uh, was best friends with Woody Guthrie. Mm. And uh, it was about their time in the Merchant Marine right before World War II, oh. where the United States was sending stuff to the British and the Russians and, uh, and on the, these Merchant Marine ships and uh, Per capita, they they took the most casualties of anybody in the war because uh, the German U-boats just sank them. So I wrote a script for that guy, and um, and it was really cool because the Guthrie family gave me uh, uh, ton, total access to to his mm. archives. And uh, um, anyway, then 
then it just didn't work anymore. I, I, I just, Mimi was well-intentioned, but I didn't really get through the grieving process. So uh, I basically stopped answering the phone, stopped answering emails. And, uh, and then eventually I wrote this as a screenplay. And uh, as I said, I can't not write anything with humor. So it's pretty <laughs> sardonic. It's pretty... Uh, um, it's not a revenge fantasy. I wanted, sure. I, I wanted my protagonists to be very moral people and, uh, and the villains died in very creative ways, but it was their own, uh, avarice greed or trying to hide the evidence of their crimes that got them killed. They, mm -hmm. and, uh, my protagonists, they just put it down to karma and, uh, and some private, some, uh, retiring police lieutenant, uh, kind of zeroes in on them and then um, he has to make a moral decision because his daughter died in uh, from similar circumstances as my wife and uh, so he has to make a decision so it goes from being extremely funny and very dark and very gory and uh, and um, not for children and uh, to a very ultimately moving uh, thing and um, so I, I can't use names here, but I gave it to a director uh, who gave it to her agent. And it's one of the big, well, to gave it to their agent, who's one of the <laughs> uh, you know, biggest agencies on the planet. They gave it to their story department, for which is common uh, for something called coverage, which is like a book report on the thing. And, um, and the director got a hold of the coverage and... Uh, it couldn't have been better if I'd, you know, gone in there and written it myself. It, uh, Bravara opening, uh, and Andy would strongly recommend. And then the agent calls me, um, that night from, from, uh, their car. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep those pronouns neutral. And, uh, <laughs> and so the agent, the agent says to me, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the agent says, uh, my brother's a doctor and he's not like that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and what do you say? Um, you know, I've been in the business quite a long time and, um, and you get notes, you get notes, you get comments like that out of the blue and you learn to just kind of uh, roll with it, be polite, uh, be, uh, if someone can see me air quoting, uh, be collaborative. And, um, you know, so I said, well, I, really wasn't writing about your brother since I didn't even know you had a brother. And, um, I'm, mm -hmm. and some of the dialogue in here is like verbatim, verbatim, mm -hmm. uh, like doctors can't, when you're lying on a gurney in pre-op and, and there's three doctors, uh, five feet away from you, washing their hands, disparaging their patients, uh, making fun <laughs> of them. They think you they think, well, I'm a writer. I'm a sponge. Uh, they got surgical sponges, but I was, I'm a real sponge. And uh, so I said, there's dialogue uh, in this that, that I didn't need to change a word. And um, <laughs> anyway, um, and I was polite about it. And, uh, and, but ultimately he's, we, I don't want to take this out unless you soften it. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I was having a pretty good run selling spec screenplays at that point. And to, to, big studios and, um, and you cash very nice checks, but ultimately most of the time you spend a year or so rewriting them, uh, for executives that 
got they've got a Ivy League MBA and their life experience is mainly watching TV and other movies. And, um, you know, so you learn to be collaborative and you learn mm-hmm. and you and you do the notes and they get fired. Then you got to get the notes from their replacements. <laughs> a new director comes in and he has a different vision of your script. And um, some of these scripts are personal and some of them were just commercial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and the best ones were the marriage of the two. But ultimately, after a while, um, they, they were rewritten so much that whatever sparked the initial sale was gone. It was written out of the thing. And so the scripts go and die a slow, lonesome death in development hell. And I didn't want this to happen to this one. Because uh, this one this one was just too close to me and too personal to me. And um, and so in the middle of the conversation with the with the person, the agent, uh, they pre- they pretend they got rear-ended. I didn't hear a sound effect or anything, but they go, <laughs> I just got hit by another car. Hung up on me. Uh, they called the director and said, uh, "This guy is extremely difficult to work with," and uh, and and they gave the director a, uh, uh, "Hey, and, and by the way, we got an offer for you on a really huge movie, and uh, you should do that." And instead of going, instead of sticking with this, the mm-hmm. director moved on, and I went, "Okay, this is never going to go. This is never going to be." It's never going to be a film, maybe a film one day, but it won't be the film that uh, I want it to be or uh, I, I need it to be. And um, so I've never written I've never written a novel and I thought about it over the years. But there is always, uh, you know, you have kids to raise, you have people, you have a, you have people to support and you have uh, and uh, it's kind of like if you stop working, people wonder, well, where'd he go? What happened to him? Something's wrong. But someone's not hiring him. So you keep working, you keep working. Uh, but I, I think at this point, I just didn't care. I wanted, and so I called my, my agent and I said, uh, don't send this out to anybody. No, he, he, he freaked out because he, he, the script was really, it was as good as the reader said it was. And, um, God, I'm sounding so egotistical, but uh, but I believed in it. And um, so I went and wrote it as a novel. And it took a couple of years. And the reason it took a couple of years is I had two major surgeries in the middle of it. And anesthetic, general anesthetic stays in you four to six months. So you might think you're okay. You can pay the bills. You could uh, talk on the phone okay. But uh, uh when you write, when you come four months later, when you look at what you've written, you go, this is garbage. And also uh, writing in a new medium. Uh, when you write screenplays, you're, you're, you're basically trained to write what the camera can see, what the sound can hear. Anything you can sneak, anything of yourself that you could sneak in there, great. But um, you, you can't go into people's heads. So I'm, the novel was extreme, writing a novel was extremely liberating. And uh, ultimately, uh, it became too liberating for me. And it became, I was just looking at, this is really self-indulgent. And uh, you know, so I drove the metaphors off a cliff and, uh, and rewrote it. And uh, in between these operations and, uh, and um, here it is. It's, 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 and, and COVID happened uh, as I was doing the final pass through it. Mm-hmm. And I had really mixed feelings then. I mean, here I am trashing doctors 
who most of them are noble and, and oh yeah, the yeah. profession's noble and uh, and they're on the and they're dying and they're on the front lines fighting mm-hmm. the scourge and uh, and even though it's looking better now, uh, all we gotta do is look back at the Spanish flu, which came back three years straight. And you know they were dancing in the streets in San Francisco at the after the end of the first year. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? Uh, there's no. We're studying the vaccine in real time. Um, anyway, um, so I was writing this, and and I then set it back a couple of years uh, pre-COVID, and uh, ended it just as COVID was uh, coming into our consciousness. And uh, so that was my way of getting out of that. And because uh, I, you know, I felt queasy about, you know, uh, but these these doctors that uh, that uh, bite the bullet in uh, my book uh, in very creative ways and snowman costumes and whatever, uh, they, uh, they deserve it. Right, anyway, right. so uh, I got it published and um, and. Um, here I am uh, doing a podcast and uh, being on social media and doing all the things that <laughs> as a background person I never dreamed I'd be doing or uh-huh. never, never, never was an aspiration. Sure. But, sure. Uh, but anyway, that's the genesis of the book. And uh, at least I, you know, it's, it was a blessing that the guy was like, he that the, the agent was like they were, uh, it was a blessing in a way because now for better or worse, I own every word on that, on the, in that book. And, um, and if someone, someone doesn't like it, I can't blame someone else. I can't <laughs> go, this executive made me put that scene in there, you know, mm-hmm. or that character or soften that character or whatever. It's all mine. And, uh, and more importantly, it's all the it, it's the truth as I lived it, and it's high, it's a truth on steroids, and it's it's quite hyperbolic, and uh, but it's also ultimately quite moving. It was a real high wire act, and uh, I learned a lot about writing. Uh, oh. You know, you, you can teach old dogs new tricks, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, so I hope you do find the time to read it. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, and. Uh, Shoot me an email or something. Uh, I, I sure will. Love to hear what you think of it. I sure will. I sure will. I, you know, I, the parts of it that I had read, you know, I can kind of look at it at the beginning. You're talking about all these forms this guy has to sign and everything when you're in the hospital. And I'm like, my God, you know, this is what it's become. You know, it's you're even when I was a kid, I was kind of at the tail end, of, you know, in the early 70s growing up, and where the doctor still came to your house with his satchel. You know, he'd write you a prescription or something. You go to the drugstore, get it filled. And that was the end of it. You know, I mean, nowadays, I mean, you show up at the doctor's office, you know, you've got form after form after form. I know. And you had said, you know, you you were just talking about too, how, you know, a lot of doctors, they're out there on the front line. They're really working hard to save people and do what they need to do. But I know a number of people that are in the medical profession nowadays, and you're not kidding. I mean, they're spending 40 hours a week with patients and another 40 doing the damn paperwork. I mean, that's yeah, what the yeah. things have really become. My yeah. father spent 44 years as an attorney and he's retired, but he was a medical attorney. And I tell you what, don't put him in the hospital and do any tests on him that he doesn't think are necessary because he knows how the whole system works. 
And um, he's <laughs> we've had to kind of say, you know, down Fido, come on, dad, you know, leave him alone. You know, they're just, you know, he'll go Perry Mason on somebody. If he's not exactly satisfied, he needs something done, you know? Yeah. There's a plot point in there where the, where a character who experienced uh, uh, a lot of what I experienced uh, has a spinal fusion and mm-hmm. it doesn't fuse. You're it's supposed to fuse mm-hmm. in 10 months or so. Um, you wear a very, very constricting brace uh, that you can't even take off for more than 30 seconds in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wear it day and night. Uh, but um, after 10 months, after the physical therapy, it, it as he said, uh, jackhammer can't get through this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and <laughs> which accounts for the line uh, that, that, that admitting lady says uh, where, when you're, when, he, when when the character's questioning the doctor about uh, the his, the proprietary, he has proprietary interest in the titanium uh, device he's sticking in the guy's back, and she says something like, uh, "You'll be hollering down from heaven at your grandkids when the cemetery floods and the titanium's floating back past their ha- your grandkids' <laughs> house." Anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, but he told me. Uh, when I came back and said, I'm in a lot of pain, this is not working. Uh, I, I, what do I do? And I don't want to take pain pills and Mm -hmm. I don't want to, um, you know, I, I still have to function. And, uh, and he said, well, I'm sorry, but, uh, if you, you know, sometimes fusions don't work and you're going to be, uh, or, uh, you know, or they don't, you know, not everybody has a real successful outcome, but you're going to have to be a pain management uh, patient for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And he sent me to the pain management department. And this is a really kind of uh, hospital of stars. Uh, mm-hmm. You look at every uh, kind of celebrity who dies, they all die at this one particular hospital in LA, which I better not mention, or they'll send uh, people here too. Um, a- anyway, uh, so I go to the head of uh, the pain management thing. He implants a, basically a virtual drugstore in my back, and mm. uh, which gave me electric shocks. And mm. I, and it's a pretty funny and gory scene in the book. But uh, uh, in fact, it winds up in Pakistan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so I said, take it out. And um, th- that's when I um, met this rheumatologist who figured out the cause of everything being this weird sort of autoimmune disease that just mm-hmm. kept attacking my orthopedic system. Anyway, so uh, she says, she said, see this orthopedist because he's the only guy I would let my family touch. And uh, I go see him and he's in the cubicle next to the guy who said I was a permanent pain management patient. And he said, did uh, this doctor tell you that the fusion never fused? And I went, no. Um, he's, and so he played it straight. I mean, he wasn't, he had, he had to be honest about it. Uh, and I knew better than to ask him why the guy didn't say it didn't infuse. Uh, I raked my revenge on him in the book, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, I, so I needed to, so that whole superstructure had to be pulled out of my back and a new one put in. Mm. And because uh, he said that was my only solution. No, I was not a pain management patient. I just had a fusion that was failed. And uh, and the other guy tried to say I had a syndrome called failed back syndrome, and uh, even a fusion couldn't fix it. 
And uh, so the guy did a fusion, and thankfully I'm walking around. I'm okay. Uh, It's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but I've learned to live with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, People live with a lot worse. And um, so, um, yeah, so I I had the – so basically I'm developing material, not realizing I'm developing material. And uh, so writing it, writing it as a book was quite cathartic, and um, and um, and I'm proud of it. And um, and um, it's put me in a place where I never want to write a screenplay again. I right. I, I, I I've outlined the next novel, and I'm going for it. Well, great. Uh, great. As long as my brain's working, why not? Hey, hey, go for it. You know, go for it. You know, something that you may as well, you may as well. And I, and I don't know if you're seeing what I'm seeing online, but the the pre-reviews from people who don't know me, uh, who have no stake in whether I'm a, mm-hmm. uh, this succeeds or fails, uh, have given it really good reviews. And uh, it's for just you. been out a couple of weeks, but, uh, but uh Places I've never heard of the Midwestern uh, Book Review. Actually, I have heard of them. Uh, Kirkus, everybody's heard of. Uh, they gave it like raves, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking. So, actually, if it stopped right now, I'm kind of happy. Uh, it it, it uh, that means I succeeded in uh, saying what I wanted to say, and now I'm just going to spend uh, as much time as I can getting as many people to read it uh, as possible because. Uh, it's an it's some it's a being in a hospital or having a, a interaction with an insurance health insurance company uh, is usually a negative experience for a lot of people mm-hmm. or there's someone in their family someone they love someone they hate whatever but everybody knows somebody that that's a, that's just not had a good outcome and so I figure a whole lot of people. And I'm not political in this. It's uh, I think a whole lot of people can relate to uh, it, and uh, and I think they can share in some of the catharsis, and uh, also I think they can share in some of what uh, the vision uh, represented by two characters in particular, uh, what medicine could and should be, uh, and so um, so I'm anxious just to have people read it on that level. Uh, Great. It's not a question of I need to be a famous author. I need to make money. I, Writers Guild gives me a pension. I get mm-hmm. old enough for Social Security. I got a roof <laughs> over my head. So I don't need to be famous. I just want people to read the, read the book. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, where can we find this book? Um, wherever fine books are sold. Okay. Uh, I mean, like actually, a- seriously, I mean, it's at Amazon. I know the first run sold out uh, okay. in the paperback. But it's available electronically. The hardback's there, and there's a couple of week wait on the paperback. And okay. um, Amazon, obviously, they're the you know the twenty million pound gorilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's at Barnes and Noble as well. I don't know if it's physically in stores yet. I bought. Yeah. Uh, I, it's at a place called Bookshop.org, which mm-hmm. is a conglomeration of a bunch of independent bookstores. So it helps them, but at least in LA, uh, where I am, um, or the fringes of it, uh, the, your bookstore readings are not, uh, they're not back. 
Mm -hmm. uh, browsing in bookstores, I don't think is yet allowed. Right, and, sure. Uh, and I think too many people are, you know, quite frankly, they're just scared to go in, indoors uh, um, just from just from what I observe. And so um, buying it online is probably one's best shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it is, you said, available electronically as well as paperback and hardback too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little a, bit of a delay getting some. Yeah. Right? There's a Kindle version, a Nook version. And mm -hmm. I even learned this you don't even need a Kindle to read it electronically. Uh, you download the app, whether you have an Android device or an, iP or an Apple device, an iPad, mm -hmm. uh, you can read it on that. And Great. So it's pretty easy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, folks, you know, you know where to go find it and pick it up. Give it a good, give it a good read. Check it out. It's Ruben Leader's book. You might feel a little prick. So Ruben, you've got quite a background as you know, you, we, you know, obviously now you're an author and, uh, again, much luck. And, uh, we wish you, you know, lots of, uh, luck and prosperity with your book and hope it does very well for you here, but you've had quite a long line. Um, you know, you come from a showbiz family. In a lot of ways, you know, we've got, you know, we've got the Sheens and we've got Barrymore's and we've got the, uh, Carradine's and there's so many of them out there, but you know, there's a lot of your family that is, you know, on the side of writing and producing and directing, you know, not actors yeah. really, but you know, doing that end of it. Actually, my dad was an actor and he, he's sort of the genesis, uh, okay, uh, okay. Of, of our family being in this business, by the way, I did, I've worked with two Carradine brothers. Uh, uh anyway robert and the yeah late, the late kung David. fu and, uh yeah uh what a what a shame that was because uh, he was a really good guy yeah um anyway my dad was born in uh brooklyn uh 1926 and he was mm -hmm. a child actor he was on uh I think the goldberg's radio show oh wow uh, no kidding no uh, kidding and he enlisted in the army in 1943 when he was 17 uh, yeah, to get yeah. my grandmother's permission because uh, he wasn't 18 yet mm -hmm. but uh so he joined Patton's. he was assigned to Patton's army became a combat medic and uh liberated Buchenwald mm -hmm. and uh, as you mentioned my uh mom she passed away this last spring mm -hmm. in 97 mm -hmm. uh she survived uh five camps including Auschwitz and mm -hmm. uh Mm -mm. And they had a death march. That's what they call it out of uh, Auschwitz, where my mom said, if you stop walking, they shot you and you're walking oh, barefoot in the, and you're walking barefoot in the snow. And they were walking back into Germany because the Russians were coming from the east to liberate Auschwitz. Anyway, she was taken to Bergen-Belsen, where she was ultimately liberated by the British. My, I have another cousin uh, who was a war hero. Uh, he was a navigator on a B-17 or a B-29, I forget which. And uh, he was in the Pacific Theater. Uh, this guy wanted to be a ballet dancer. I knew him just as a child. And he was just really funny. The plane got, it took a lot of anti-aircraft fire and the pilot and co-pilot were killed. And he lost an eye. His leg was shot to hell. So that mm -hmm. uh, ended any, any dancing in ambitions he may have had but anyway he he went to the cockpit and flew the through the bomber flew the bomber back to it and landed it on an aircraft carrier and this is a navigator wow and, uh, so he became a so he's a big war hero and he used his influence to get 
my mom uh, out of Belgium, where she was from, because her whole family was killed. She had nobody. And there she met my dad in New York. And so he resumed his career. He was actor and singer. He was on a Broadway show called Top Banana with Phil Silvers. Uh, oh, wow. Phil, I love Phil Silvers. I'm, I'm a big fan of, again, it, it was a little before my time, but the Sergeant Bilko. Me too. <laughs> Those guys were hilarious. Yeah. That, that show, I tell you what, I see that on MeTV. I absolutely love that when that's on. I mean, that was a well-done show. It really was. It was really that hiking. Yeah. Then my dad, MGM, called him, uh, discovered him, and uh, brought him out to L.A. to give him a screen test and uh, and make a movie. They gave him a nose job, and he was quite <laughs> handsome anyway, and they wanted to make him a star. And then he had inexplicable bouts of uh, vertigo attacks where he would just hmm. lose his balance and violently crash through things. He he crashed through a plate glass window and it was, you know, blood everywhere. I remember, I was a kid. I remember it. And he, he basically had an inner ear problem, had five surgeries and that ended his career as an actor and a singer, but he was bitten by the bug and he, he became, um, he taught himself how to direct, taught himself how to write. And he had no connections to anybody. Uh, he raised money by mortgaging the house to my mom's chagrin uh, (laughs) and would make very low budget. I mean, ultra low budget independent films. Mm -hmm. And he would alternate very commercial ones uh, like cult classics, like I just remember mama uh, (laughs) distributor title that that there's no dismembering of mom in the, in the thing, but it's a great title. And uh, he'd alternate those with ones that were close to his heart. He he wrote one called Going to Chicago about the 68, the riots in Chicago at the Democratic mm-hmm. Convention in 68. That won the inaugural Best of the Fest Prize at the Santa Bar- first year of the Santa Barbara Film Festival. But he had to pay for those because they didn't make any money. Cleveland Little was in that one. He had to he had to pay for those by doing the I Dismember Mamas and the Ape in 3D movie. And a uh, cheap source of labor was his family. Uh, <laughs> my mom cooked for 30 or 40 crew members. Everybody slept at this big sprawling house they had. And so Mimi, Geraldine, and myself, we were cheap labor. Uh, you didn't have to pay us. We, we worked, worked on all those early movies and... Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked in every department. Uh, I remember being on 11, 11 years old and learned how to ride a Vespa to bring props back and forth from to, from the set to the base. And uh, <laughs> and so we learned. It was fun. It was sort of like, you know, we would ditch school and uh, to be on work on the movies. And uh, yeah, they stressed education. Uh, since I'm basically a polymath, I never finished. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't finish and uh, I was because I was also a musician and I kept having to drop out of school because I would get a really good gig somewhere. I'd mm-hmm. get like four months somewhere and I go, yeah. <laughs> so I, I wound up never finishing school. So uh, which is probably a bad idea for most people because uh, mm-hmm. most people don't get lucky. Well, anyway, so um, I. Mimi uh, parlayed that into um, getting a scholarship at the American Film Institute and became the first woman uh, 
cinematographer mm-hmm. made movies for uh, made made shot a bunch of movies that got her a job on Hill Street Blues as mm-hmm. a script supervisor. Concurrently, uh, I'm sitting home writing scripts and uh, at, and and also at night in uh, daytime I'm tarring roofs and uh, and mm-hmm. painting apartment buildings and uh, also. I, I was at night. I was a musician as well, and I took some gigs, uh, certainly just for the money, like playing piano for singing uh, opera waiters in Italian restaurants, that kind of thing. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but also, um, um, it, it was the late '60s, so we mm-hmm. were playing in a lot of. Uh, we opened for the Turtles at the Whiskey A Go Go. Oh, nice, uh, nice, nice. I remember. We're playing. Uh, we're the house band at this place in Venice Beach, and uh, and a guy came up to me and uh, and said, "That's really nice piano playing, son." And I went, "Thanks." And I don't know. And everybody goes, hey, "You know who that was?" And I go, "No." And they go, "That's Phil Oaks." And probably ninety percent of your listeners don't know who Phil Oaks is, but he was an incredible folk singer. He wrote "Draft Dodger." rag outside oh, of the yeah. circle of friends um i ain't marching anymore he, he was an icon and uh he also had issues because he because he hung himself a year later yeah. uh but um yeah so uh that was my that was my youth and uh so it's pretty hard to uh uh sit in a classroom while the world was out there waiting to be uh oh, sure, sure conquered i guess or not conquered but uh but uh, engaged. So I had a tough time choosing between music and and baseball and uh, and writing. Writing came. Oh, this is terrible. This, uh, it came easy to me. That doesn't mean I was good, but it came easy to me. And uh, the more I did it, the better I got. And I I got one. My dad had a friend, Bill Norton, who was a forest ranger, and uh, he wrote plays. Just wrote plays. Wrote plays. He finally wrote, he wrote, a, he wrote a screenplay, and he's close to 40 when this happened. Somehow it got to Burt Lancaster, and it became a movie called The Scalp Hunters in the uh, mid-60s, I guess, 66. Anyway, so Bill became a famous screenwriter. I used to type his scripts, got a dollar a page. But it was an education uh, because I'm watching really good, I'm typing really good writing. I'm seeing what he does. And uh, so initially, everything I wrote sounded like Bill Norton. (laughs) (laughs) Then you develop your own voice. Mm -hmm. Um, Raising two little babies and uh, and doing paying the rent. I uh, kept writing scripts and uh, my dad certainly didn't have any connections. I cold called places. I went to studios. I knocked on doors. I, I just... Got did anything I could to get someone to read the, read a script. Mm-hmm. I used to get back then they wrote you letters in the mail, rejections rejection letters. Uh, I know uh, I got a lot of them myself. We were <laughs> trying to get a record deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I I had a bathroom that we had a bathroom that I painted purple and green, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember <laughs> what time it was, what the era it was. Anyway, I would tape up every rejection letter there, and uh, mm-hmm. finally, uh, one script uh, hit the one script hit for me, and uh, it was about a friend of mine. Uh, it was called Gastown. I'd still like to make it, uh, but it was about uh, he was in, in the army and uh, he deserted. 
and moved to and, and went to Canada. And his brother, meanwhile, was in Army intelligence and uh, was sent to talk him out of it. Go, he went to Canada mm -hmm. to talk him out of it. So I wrote their story, and uh, that got me that got me in. Mm -hmm. And uh, then once you're in, everything sort of changes. If you're good enough to stick, uh, you, you you stick. And so uh, I I graduated from the low budget films to uh, uh, my first mainstream job was on the Hulk on the last season of the Hulk. And uh, I didn't know any better. Uh, they, the, the staff, the writing staff, they were wonderful. And I'm friends with many of them today still. And uh, I had a, I'm sorry. I go ahead. Well, I just finished this really quickly, uh, but they, they, they put me, I, we agreed on a story. They put me, they put me in the script on a Friday evening, Friday afternoon, and I didn't know any better. So I went home as fast as I could. I just typed all weekend. I turned it in Monday morning. I got a call Monday afternoon, said, do you want to be the story editor? We need a story editor. And I went, what's a story editor? And uh, what a story editor was, was a seven-year contract at Universal. And uh, from there, I went on to Magnum and uh, six years of that. And uh, so, yeah, that's how I got into it. Um, but go ahead. Yeah, I had a, a, a previous guest who I'm going to have one again. He wrote a book called The Hulk Companion, mm. a fellow by the name of Pat Jankowitz, a friend of mine who lives in Los Angeles. And um, he wrote a pretty, it was a pretty thick book, just about everything, the incredible, everything, incredible Hulk. Um, and I'm sure he touched on the TV show as well as, you know, the comics and everything else that's yeah. out there. Yeah. And, um, that was, that, that was a show I really enjoyed when I was growing up. I think, um, that was on in my later elementary school and early uh, middle school years. I, I like, I gotta say good job. Cause I like the show, you know, um, you know, good job when you're know, writing and everything, uh, any particular memories. And the one thing I kind of want to ask you about here is sort of the process. You're know, not particularly, you know, about the Hulk you know, or Magnum or anything like that in this question here. But what I want to kind of ask is, um, you know, I, I know as an actor, there's nothing easy about getting, you know, there is a lot you got to go through to pass an audition. Oh yeah. You get onto a TV show, you got to get signed off on by so many people, not only the casting people, but that's got to go up the ladder and everybody's got to like you. It's got to be unanimous. And there are a lot of people that you're being picked from. Oh yeah. Writers, you know, not only, yeah, you come up with a great story and I'm sure you've got to hand that in. And I'm sure, you know, whenever you come up with your story, you look like the proverbial writer with about a thousand pieces of crumpled up paper around your desk. Um, you know, you hand in your final script and then all of a sudden now come the red pens all the way up and you've got to change this, that, and the other thing. And I'm sure it gets very difficult to get a script out there sometimes to try to tell the stories you want to tell. Uh, could you kind of elaborate on that a bit? And a lot of times too, it's, it's not even people that are part of the creative process. Yeah. I, I was shielded in the beginning, uh, by the people who were my bosses on the Hulk. They were, they were, they were just wonderful mentors and mm -hmm. they were from all different walks of life, uh, Vietnam veteran, uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, the sister of the president of the studio. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> it was just really, uh, but they were, they were, they were so giving. And, uh, mm -hmm. and the one advantage I had was because of all those 
movies with working with working on my dad's movies, I I had a really keen sense of production. So I would uh, um, I knew better than the right uh, a scene of description called uh, saying that uh, the Mongols sacked the village because uh, how do you shoot that? Uh, what's the director do with that? What do the producers do with that? You got right. one day to shoot that or two days to shoot that. So I, I knew how to write for production and, uh, and that served me in good stead and gave me, it, it gave me a lot of, uh, credibility there. So, uh, it, and it also gave me a lot of confidence when you sort of realize that the, most of the people who are giving you notes, not the people that you're immediate, the creative people you're immediately under, they know what they're doing, uh, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But but uh, but when the suits, as uh, as we probably still are called, when they start giving you notes, you learn to go. Okay, they 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 really don't know what they want. They want to be reassured, mm-hmm. and, and at the same time, they also want to feel like they have some creative uh, propriety that they they own it creatively a little bit too. So yeah. they it gives them so, so they're not strictly a suit. I'm creative too. And mm-hmm. so you got to feed into that and go, Hey, that's a good idea. Oh, and it makes me think about this. What well, that idea is so good. What if we did it this way? And you learn to think on your feet and, and, and try and get it back to the way you wanted it in the first place, as long as they think they took it there. And uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a, uh, horrible game uh, to keep on playing but uh once you get once you if you're fortunate enough to get on a hit show which magnum after the first season became a real hit show then their efforts to give you their 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 power to give you notes and make you change stuff changes a whole lot you you simply could just uh become sort of a jerk and go, no, Tom doesn't want to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, I was fortunate to wind up on a couple of hit shows very early. Mm-hmm. Did you get uh, a chance oh, to, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to go back to that guy I was telling you about who wound up being an assistant manager at this barbecue place. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good story. What people did back then, producers, there there was a thing called, well, credit stealing, essentially, is, and it's called arbitration. So when uh, the staff, when the staff on a show rewrote somebody, they usually arbitrated the freelance writer. And I was taught from the beginning and sort of intuitively figured it out anyway, that it was a wrong thing to do. And it, it happens all the time, although there's less than freelance writers are like dinosaurs now they don't exist everything's completely staff written but there were a lot of staff writers uh, the freelance writers were uh, middle class writers who made their living and they depended on the residuals from the show they wrote and if they were lucky enough to write for a hit show they would get residuals for years and uh, you know the residuals would descend but if you arbitrated them and took partial credit that their, their residual uh, went down so we're paid we're paid very good salaries to rewrite, to do, to, to do our jobs. And so I never, to this day, that guy's name is the sole name on that script, even though we cut him off. I just wanted to go full circle and tell you about it. About oh, that. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did you have any, like, you know, Bill Bixby, you know, was, you know, was the star of the incredible Hulk. Did you, um, 
you know, have any interaction with him? I mean, because he was kind of the main character. Did you have any uh, interaction with him? You know, when it comes to what that character does, you know, writing for that character, that sort of thing. Yeah, what was he much, like with that? Very much so. He was a very, he directed uh, also, he directed a lot of television. He grew up in television. He uh, sure did. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah. I'm uh, my favorite Martian uh, courtship of Eddie's father, something like that. Yeah. The courtship uh, of Eddie's father and a lot of stuff back in the sixties. Um, yeah. You would see him on a lot of the sitcoms back then as yeah. kind of like a uh, character actor. And then he would get like his more permanent roles. It would kind of go yeah. on from there. But uh, Andy Griffith, he was on Andy Griffith. That's where right. I saw him. Yeah. Uh, he became jaded and uh, he indulged and uh, and he had a temper and and he had a tragedy. He had a real tragedy when I knew him in that final season of the Hulk. He uh his son uh, died, six-year-old son died of a botched tracheotomy. Uh, so the son died, and um, and uh, he sort of retreated. And, and But as the season went on, he was, he was feuding with the studio. He was feuding with the producers. And I was a likable guy. I was a kid. I was in my late 20s. He said, I'm only going to talk to Ruben. And it's not like we had this great big bond. He was just sort of, I think, using me as a cudgel uh, against the against the studio. Uh, so I remember when the son died. He said, "No, I'm coming back to work." And uh, and I walked into his trailer, and it was like a shrine to his kid. Uh, there's hundreds of candles, hundreds of photos. Uh, really, most one of the most tragic things I've ever seen. He was ultimately a good guy. He didn't. He didn't. He died uh i never i never became friends with him like that i hung out with him or or had any relationship with him after the show ended it was sort of tragic because i know he died fairly young he did he did yeah. that was a that was a shock and he he had just i think come off of a i have to look this up again i remember he was working on a fairly popular show at that time as well yeah um yeah. Yeah, both i think and like both he and Michael Landon both died young. And I think they were both around the same time. Yeah. Little house on the prairie. He died. Yeah. In, uh, yeah that was uh, early nineties. I think. Oh, okay. You probably yeah. know better than me. Yeah. I'm just trying to think where I was and where he was. Um, yeah. It was the early nineties. Mm -hmm. And think, and let me ask you a bit about um, your experience on Magnum PI. I mean, that was a very popular show and, uh, I liked I liked that show, um, and and I like Tom Selleck because he did a movie here in Baltimore where I'm from called Her Alibi that my uncle had a uh, background spot on. And could uh, tell us a bit about working on that show. Um, it was um, one of these things where when you're doing it, it's a job, mm -hmm. and uh, when you reflect back on it it's maybe the best six years you ever had. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, I, I live mostly in Hawaii. Um, we had, I met so many incredible people and I, and, I, and you probably think I'm going to spout movie stars uh, out now. And I did, but uh, the crew, uh, uh, there many of them were Samoans and mm -hmm. um, native Hawaiians. And, uh, and you, and the cliche, and you probably hear this from about every third guest that comes on, like, well, the crew is like a family. Uh, 
Well, you know, it was. You went to the you went to the, you went to their barbecues on the weekend. Uh, I played uh, I played on their softball. They ran the Magnum softball team. Uh, they 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 told you where you hit, and uh, they actually batted me third and Selleck fourth mainly because we were left-handed and yeah, uh, yeah. and why why that helped was the park we played in Capilani Park uh the breeze came in from the ocean and so it was from left to right so if you put anything in the air in right field it was a home run mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we just uppercut everything and, and hit it to right field and they finally uh the park people made a rule and said no no more home runs those are ground rule doubles <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And but, you know, uh, um, yeah, he, but, I, he, but I, 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 I love that time because uh, the, the relationships you develop and uh, mm-hmm. and um, I, I listened to a couple of your po- podcasts because I wanted to get to oh, know, okay. I wanted to get to know you a little bit first and not just have you be a you know a voice mm-hmm. uh, and um, the music stuff really got me because it really brought me back to my past. But uh, um. Um, you were talking to somebody about. Please cut this. Uh, <laughs> um, damn. Um, was it the doors? No, it was. Um, oh, it was a. It was a woman uh, who was a, a daughter of an actor of a character actor, John Mitchum. Oh yes, and, Cindy. Uh, yeah, yes. And uh, Cindy, yeah. And she was talking about how nice Ernest Borgnine was, and you mm-hmm. know what? That is so true. He played. I wrote an episode called "Mr. White Death" about a washed-up wrestler, and and Ern, Ernie Borgnine played him, and uh, he was. I, I have to say, the nicest actor I've ever met in show. It was giving and. Uh, there's a lot of nice actors and there's a lot of actors who have a really nice public persona, but they're, they're, uh, they're jerks. Uh, they're, yeah. you know, I mean, it takes, uh, it takes an awful amount of ego combined with insecurity to put yourself out there and be an actor. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Borgnine was just, just a wonderful guy. Uh, yeah. I, I listening to one of your podcasts and ran across her and, uh, she's so right. He, he was a, he was a great person. One of the things I really enjoy is, and, and the reason I started this podcast was pretty much as a regional thing, because I'm from the mid Atlantic region. And, you know, as a performer, you know, years ago, I started out playing in Baltimore, DC, New York and bands. Yeah. And then you know, there was a whole world in the eighties, seventies, eighties and nineties around here where it was just a magical time. And so I got interested in the history of that. I got interested in listening to a lot of podcasters like Eddie Trunk, Gilbert Gottfried, and um, other people like Mark Malkoff with the Johnny Carson podcast that he does. And I just really got interested in showbiz history, you know, the things that I've seen and finding out the stories behind that. But one thing that you are saying, which is correct, not only did I hear it from um, you know, uh, Cindy Mitchum, but you know, I'd heard from a lot of other sources that, you know, Ernest Borgnine was just absolutely delightful. Yeah. You know, just absolutely delightful to work with and just a fine person outside of acting. Yeah. Another one was Robert Forster who just passed away. Mm-hmm. Year, year, I see 
maybe maybe a little less than a year. I mm. guess the current audience will know him from uh, as the vacuum cleaner salesman from uh, Better Call Saul and uh, and Breaking Bad. Yes, but, yes. Um, he was in a great movie about the '68 Chicago convention called Medium Cool. Uh, he also starred as a Native American private investigator in a, in a one-season series called City of Angels, mm-hmm. which was really good. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, you, you meet. But then Frank Sinatra would come over. Carol Burnett would come over. Perfectly mm-hmm. nice, but yeah, you know, really, those those are, you know, those, those were just showbiz friends uh, mm-hmm. that you were friends with for a week or nine days or ten days, and then you never yeah. saw them again. But mm-hmm. uh, there, there's other people you made lasting relationships with, and uh, and uh, and doing it in Hawaii uh, was, was there. Do you remember Hogan's Heroes? Yes, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. the African American guy on that was a actor named Ivan Dixon. Ivan Dixon, yeah, I've seen him in a lot of stuff. He's a good uh, actor. He, he did a great movie called Nothing But a Man in the early '60s. Yes, actually, I've seen that. That's a good movie. It actually is the first movie that I can recall that mm-hmm. used that used uh, not pop music, they used rhythm and blues and soul music, but using real, real music as source music. And, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, where you would hear, uh, that was the first movie. And I know, uh, I, I, doubt, I doubt if we were the first, but uh, I know on the end of Magnum, we started using it and then now it's ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. But, um, um yeah, you just you just really make these connections that uh, that don't go away, and you, and uh, and um, oh, back to Ivan, uh, he's one of them, and everybody joked. Uh, the crew always joked about Ivan because uh, on Fridays we'd wrap at four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no one would wrap at four, and uh, no director ever did, but he he did. Uh, sacrifice a couple of close-ups but whatever um we're standing on the beach at the colony surf is where they uh, uh combination hotel condo where they would stick uh the the us and um and we're standing lena horn lived there uh, not lena horn um ah, another actress uh but anyway uh he's saying ruben what do you see and you know people are just walk, you know, hanging on the beach and uh, playing volleyball and swimming in the surf. And, uh, and I go people on the beach and, uh, he goes, no, what do you see? And, and I didn't have a good answer. I, and, and he said, look, they're all some kind of, they're all some variation of a Brown color. Um, and he said, this is the future of the world and it'll, I'll be dead. You'll be dead, but this is what the world's going to eventually look like. And and Hawaii's at the vanguard of it, and I'm going to retire here because he was close to retirement, and mm-hmm. and uh, he did retire there, and he moved to Magnum. I uh, moved moved to Maui, opened up, uh, started a radio station. I'd go visit him every year after that, and uh, when Magnum was when I was off Mag when Magnum was done, and these kids who worked at the station, they 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 just loved him and. Uh, you know, I'd drive him to lunch, he'd be sleeping, but uh, <laughs> uh, but he did live out his dream. I mean, he had health problems that forced him to come back, and he mm-hmm. passed away uh, at his original home in North Carolina. But uh, but he, few people get to live out their dreams like he did, and mm-hmm. um, um, that's one, that's, 
Yeah, so that, that's an experience I never would have gotten on if I worked on any of the innumerable cop shows that were sci-fi shows that were around back then. Right, so, right. Another thing, too, with Tom Selleck, and you were talking about playing softball, and you know, he was, um, I believe he was in town promoting the movie Her Alibi, which I had mentioned earlier, yeah. and he actually came in and took batting practice with the Orioles, and he became friends with Cal Ripken at the time, that was the era when Cal was playing. And yeah. uh, he held his own. He held his own. Yeah, so yeah. that's definitely. Uh, he was a good hitter. He was mm-hmm. a good hitter. Uh, yeah. We used to go to batting cages together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Uh, he actually, I wrote uh, and directed a, ba- a movie that had basketball as sort of the inciting incident. Uh, and he said, you got to write me some basketball because I can still dunk. And I don't know when I'll be able not to. He was six, five and a half, probably just about. Uh, yeah. I remember him. Yeah. He, he is a fairly tall person. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, yeah, he went to SC and was, uh, on, on the team. He was at the end mm-hmm. of the bench, but he was on, on his under basketball team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he so I wrote the thing and he could still dunk. Uh, mm-hmm. he's a great athlete. There was a time when I could dunk. Now I can barely get off the ground, but, uh, that's <laughs> I, I could dunk, uh, I, at my draft physical, I was six feet and one half inch. And uh, mm-hmm. in my late teens and early 20s, I, there was a period of a couple of years where I could dunk mm-hmm. if the ball was deflated enough. <laughs> you get that grip on it, yeah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, my back probably paid for that. <laughs> and my knees, you know, the same thing too, you know. Um, yeah, wow. <laughs> the good old days, huh? So, um Yep. So let me ask you this too. So, um, I, I saw on your IMDB page and, um, there was a, uh, you did a land of the lost that was in the nineties. Was that a reboot of the earlier show? Like Sid Marty Croft, or was this something else? Yeah, I did it illegally, uh, uh, because it was not a writer's guild show. Uh, okay. but I played basketball with this guy, uh, who ran land of the lost. It was a Saturday morning kids show. And, yeah, I remember uh, it was and, uh, and, one. Um, you know, my career, my, I don't, I don't mean to sound elitist, but my career trajectory was in a totally different place. But he was a guy, I, I played in two regular full court games just for recreation uh, mm-hmm. all those years. And uh, so he was a good friend and his, and he and a partner ran the show and the partner died of cancer. And uh, so he asked me and, a, and, two other guys that were in that game, but also were writers. And so um, we, we went and helped them do the show. I guess the internet found out and busted us, but uh, I used a pseudonym. I had to, I barely remember anything about it other than uh, it was weird. Yeah. (laughs) 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 What was it like? It was weird. Hey, (laughs) that's Uh, great. I, I, yeah, I, I was uh, obviously at my day job. I had to go to work at, at Universal, and uh, mm-hmm. so I couldn't. Uh, I never was on the set of that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, the, one of the movies, and I'll this the uh, before we wrap it up here. I wanted to ask you about a movie that I guess um, you know, you're fairly well known for. You know, it was a definitely a leader movie, um, Ape. <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw it on YouTube. One one thing uh, Jen and uh, Scott uh, had me do was uh, get a website, 
Mm-hmm. It was embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> I never, never thought I'd have a website. There, I never. It was never an ambition. It was mm-hmm. never. Anyway, so I have it, and I and I had to write blogs about it. So in the middle of the pandemic, some guy from Japan, American living in Japan, calls me. He ran. He runs a monster, an Asian monster movie website, mm-hmm. and he wanted to interview me. And I'm and I'm just trying to get my book out, and I finally. And he was just a nice guy. So I finally did an interview uh, and talked about Ape and uh, and forgot about it. Then every time I've been Googled, I see a link to it. But so <laughs> I'm thinking, well, why not? Why not own it? Uh, the reason I did it, because uh, it's one of those movies that people say sometimes on a bad movie, it's so bad, it's good. No, this was so bad, it's bad. <laughs> uh, uh, there, there was just no money in it, and uh, uh, but my dad uh, did a movie for this Taiwanese producer the year before uh, a caper film in in Taiwan, and I, I co-wrote it with him. The producer came back to my dad and said, uh, uh, "Could you do?" And he wanted to somehow thinking he could beat King Kong out of the first. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, for about 40 cents. Uh, but he didn't deal with the South Korean film company. And my dad and I, I really, Dad? He, yeah, because <laughs> he, he needed the money. And so we we did this thing. And uh, all the stuff that the producer promised us in terms of special effects and all that were, were just not there. So uh, the movie suffered. And, um, I mean, there's some humorous stuff in the movie, but... Mm-hmm. In fact, we had a screening for friends and family when we came back mm-hmm. at, at this uh, theater. And it's like 500 people in there. The projectionist runs real one, runs real two, runs real four, runs real three, then runs real five. And no one noticed. My dad's freaking out. And I'm going, it doesn't matter. There was no continuity in that thing anyway. So, so. I wrote about the experience, and uh, so I, I, in one of the blogs, I, I took ownership of that. Mm-hmm. I hate to use that expression, but uh, you know, my I did it because my dad asked me to do it, mm-hmm. and, and he's my dad, and uh, yeah. and uh, and Mimi did it, and she shot war games. Uh, mm-hmm. It was so loose back then. The army, you you want to shoot war games uh, between uh, with us and the South Korean army? Sure, do it. So she's on helicopters getting experience that was just must have been incredible for her. Mm-hmm. And um and it was it was fun. I I I, I Koreans are really nice people and uh mm-hmm. generalized for probably the North Koreans, maybe. But uh we 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 yeah, we, we knew we weren't making art, but uh Joanna de Verona, who became Gerona Kearns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, her Joanna's sister, Donna de Verona, was an Olympic uh, athlete. Uh, anyway, Joanna became a uh, star growing pains and today's uh, still a working director. She's a really good director. And uh, so I wouldn't have met, met her. I wouldn't have met all yeah. these people. And, uh, and you know what? It didn't kill my career. It, it's stupid. It's dumb. And, uh, and people who, uh, throw stones at it from behind their screens and go, well, this is really just, you know, bottom, you know, low bottom shelf crap. And uh, you know what? Uh, you, you look at 120 blank pieces of paper, 
someone telling you to write a thing about an ape and make it in 3D and uh, and shoot it for 50 cents. Uh, you know, at least we, you can shoot with an iPhone now. We couldn't then. 3D, we were locked into this huge Panasonic that could only have a 30 millimeter lens on it. So the camera couldn't move and uh, uh, it had to just pan essentially and uh, to for the 3D to work. And, and uh, yeah, so it's what it is. And yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, there's some funny moments in it and it's not a good movie, uh, but well, yeah. uh, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, Well, you know, and the thing is too, it's like when, when you make a cult classic like that, and that's what a lot of them end up being is a cult classic. They, they're beloved. There's a crowd out there that that movie is very beloved to, you know, and um, I'm somebody I, I enjoy watching Spinguli. I enjoy watching um, MST3K sometimes. And, yeah. um, you know, you know, it, it, it's a cult classic. It's something that people remember. Um, you know, I, I remember in those days, too, um, there was another movie that came out in 3D and I can never remember the title of it, but it was about. Um, and it came out, oh, it was, it was probably about five or so years after that. And it was, or no, no, it actually came out a long time before that. But it, the, uh, the monster looked like somebody with a gorilla suit, but with a space helmet on. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much us too. You could see the yeah. guy's zipper. Yeah. Uh, that toy cow. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's absurd. Uh, mm-hmm. The shark, that the animatronic shark they promised us, uh, well, he didn't appear. So uh, we had mm-hmm. to go to a fish market at four in the morning and buy a dead shark. Mm-hmm. And the poor guy in the ape suit had to uh, rest, pretend he was wrestling a live shark. <laughs> and, right, right. You know, so it's, I mean, that movie did not harm anybody. It no. didn't offend anybody. It, uh, it made some people laugh. And, uh, mm-hmm. It didn't show human beings debasing other human beings. And not so, at all. Uh, you know, like a lot of movies do, and not a lot, but some movies do. Like, uh, I'd rather do that. I'd rather do 100 of those than one saw, for instance. And uh, so mm-hmm. uh, it's what it is. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Ruben, this has been a blast having you on the show. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and you know, hearing about your book and all of your experiences and everything. It's been really great. And, um, you got to promise me, you, you said you're going to continue to write books the next time you got to come back and see me again, my friend, I've really enjoyed speaking with you and, uh, you've been a great guest. I really appreciate it. Um, at this point, I'd like to give you the opportunity. This is called, and you've been listening to the show, you know, all about shameless plug time, right? Yeah. I have nothing to plug other than my book. Uh, uh, that's really um, all I care about is getting the most readership as possible. So people mm-hmm. can sort of share in the experience that I have and relate it to their lives. And because uh, uh, I know it's, it's a universal thing. It's not what, what I went through uh, was very specific to me, but it's got to be quite similar to what a lot of other people go through. Mm-hmm. And so maybe having the ability to, 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 to commiserate, to laugh with, uh, to maybe possibly find a solution to make things better. Cause I do offer that in the book, uh, through, through some characters. Uh, yeah, that's all I care about. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, that's all I want to plug. Uh, so I guess that means I have to, yeah, we said where to get it. I, the website also will have more information on the book. Uh, and it's 
rubenleader.com and mm -hmm. it's the biblical spelling r-e-u-b-e-n-l-e-d-e-r mm -hmm. right, um, right so <laughs> i was named after my grandfather who was uh to end the show on a high note murdered at auschwitz as well oh, but uh yeah so mm -hmm. uh but he, he was also a musician my, oh, my whole yeah. my, my mom's whole we had all these pictures here of my mom's mm -hmm. descendants her parents, her grandparents, uncles, cousins. I mm -hmm. don't know who they are, but I know I'm related to them all. And they're all in these orchestras, these folk orchestras, uh, these mm -hmm. weird stringed instruments I've never seen before that look kind of look like mandolins. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's fantastic. I'm so glad I have those pictures. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, well, again, thank you all. Thank you all for tuning in here for Ruben. It was great to have you, my friend. And, um, you know, like I said, anytime, anytime you want to come back, I'd love to have you. You know, I just really enjoyed interviewing you tonight and uh, we'll see you next time, folks. This is Ruben leader. You're listening to foul players radio. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our interviews with our guests, all with the intention of promoting the performing arts and preserving their history by sharing the wonderful stories of those who participated. You can now support foul players radio on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash foulplayersradio. Also, make sure you go to whatever platform on which you listen to Foul Players Radio and leave us a review and hopefully a five-star rating. Thanks again, and see you next time.